your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into it a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and, rose and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a glory of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and um, to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent, and Israel your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. We'll go from 1 to 14 there. All right. <clears throat> well, it's good to see all of you here this morning. Um, we're in the 19th Sunday. Of 24 in uh, this season that we sometimes call ordinary time. And now after 17 Sundays, we're almost to the conclusion of our Exodus series here. We got one more Sunday next week. In all of these weeks of ordinary time, we've been invited to see the deep structure of the world and of our lives in Jesus. And the scriptures can show us if we pay attention if we ask for the invitation, for the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. How that once-for-all salvation that's found in Christ is at work in all the world. The book of Exodus is so beautiful because it records how that very same salvation was at work during one time, the life of Moses, and in one place, in Egypt beside the Red Sea and in the wilderness. And if God is at work there, then he can be at work here and now among each and every one of you. And my hope for this morning is, is that as we listen to Exodus 32, the Israelites struggle with sin, Moses' intercession before God and God's mercy, it helps prepare you to receive the grace of God offered to you here at this table. So far, the Exodus has kind of been this tour de force, this incredible, this surprising story of a God who creates a good creation, and relentlessly seeks to redeem it, despite the apparent impossibility. It seems impossible because sin, who is God's opposition in the story, 
is not just like a human adversary that you can grab and shake and cast out. It infects all of creation, kind of like a parasite. Or maybe you could say it's a little bit like milk that's gone bad. You don't try to strain the milk and say, let's save the good part of the milk. It's just kind of all lost at that point. And it's not a question of whether God could make sin stop, right? God could with a metaphorical snap of his fingers, but then it would lose all of us, all of creation as well. But while this seems to be a paradox, what makes this story incredible is that God still has a plan and a future. And with Abraham, we begin to see God work out that plan, right? To defeat sin by filling himself within creation so much that sin itself would have no space to exist anymore. This is another paradox because the very definition of creation is that it's different, it's not God. But God nevertheless makes a covenant with Abraham, promises to dwell especially on the earth with his creatures, with Abraham and his descendants. God condescends to live among his creatures. We see that it stirs up a sinful opposition in the world as you go through the story of Abraham and his four generations, Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. We see sin again and again from without and from within try to destroy that family. But as you get to the end of Genesis, sin that had tried to destroy that family just ends up facilitating a reconciliation and a deliverance of that family, a sign of the grace, the provision, and the plan of God. But like Satan before Jesus in the wilderness, if sin doesn't succeed on the first attempt, it's going to try and try again. So Exodus, so the slavery, so the chariots and the horsemen of Egypt. But God's real presence, his power is now among his people. He has bound himself to be a part of this earth, this creation. And so he stuns Egypt with the ten plagues and a parting of the Red Sea. In the wilderness, again, sin attempts this renewed advantage, priming instincts of fear and survival and uncertainty. But again, God's own life, bound up with Israel, makes food and water bloom in the barrenness of the desert. Sin presses into the aridity of their spiritual condition, this newly sovereign people, to see if it could stir up dissension and strife, but God answers that with the promises of the law. And now the life that God has intended is chiseled into tablets of stone for now and evermore. It's quite a journey to have been on all this time, all these weeks throughout Exodus. There are all these obstacles that were in the way, but despite all those obstacles, we've arrived here in this moment when the law is being given. And so having been rescued, having received the promises, what is there left to do at this point? Sin seems to have been cowed, the people set free, God supreme. But that's when we get to Exodus 32. And as I was thinking of how Exodus 32 struck me this week, I feel like it's kind of like that moment. Have you guys ever in a movie where there's like, it's kind of like the, you feel like maybe the, the heroes have finally defeated everybody, and then out of the shadows steps the villain, and he's doing like that slow, sarcastic clap, you know? Oops. Like everything's gone really according to the villain's plan. As though sin was saying here in this moment to God, well done, 
Certainly you filled up more of yourself in this world compared to their families, to their law, to their stories, to their memories, and to their leaders. You played your hand extremely well. But then sin would say something along the lines of, but you know what? Oh, nope. This is why people don't do this. Wait, wait, wait for it. Sin's still doing the slow clap. To say I have something else, something else up my sleeve. You may be the ruler of the universe, but I'm still the king of their hearts. That was worth it. It was worth it. As soon as Moses is up the mountain with God, the people gather back together and they create an idol to worship, a golden calf. After all the steps that God has taken, all the wonders, his deliverance, Israel replaced God with something else to worship. As we're getting near to the end of Exodus here, the thing that I thought would be the knockout punch for sin ends up just being a body blow and we're back in the same contest that we've seen from the very beginning. Israel's golden calf feels particularly familiar to me. Maybe the rest of Israel's story here in the Exodus feels somewhat removed from me, again, seas being parted, the plagues, the wonders, the manna from heaven. But to fall into temptation, especially when Israel should know better, that resonates. Because it feels like it's the same world that I live in, the one that's caught amidst sin and grace, the one that's caught amidst life and death and joy and sorrow and victory and defeat that just seem to go round and round. As you start out the story of the Exodus, it feels like it has so much promise. But we all knew where this story was heading, didn't we? I mean, it's obviously our past. So then I wonder, what does this golden calf episode teach us? What does it reveal to us this morning? And as I want you to reflect a little bit more deeply on that, I want to briefly turn to the Star Wars prequel, Episode 3, Revenge of the Sith. There are some similarities here. In the prequels of the the first trilogy, we're thrown backwards from our present reference point in Episodes 4 through 6. We already know that there is a a galaxy where there's a conflict between good, which in 4 through 6 is the Rebel Alliance, and evil, which is the Galactic Empire. But with the prequels, we flash back to a time before the Empire. There's still a familiarity. Again, there's still a good and an evil that reigns. But there's also an unfamiliarity, too, to it. And it's more than just a different set of people. Somehow, the struggle that's going on in the prequels is somehow more spectacular and dazzling than it is in the first trilogy. In the armadas of starships and the platoons of Jedis that you see in the prequels, this was something that had only been hinted at as a bygone era in the first trilogy. The galaxy in the prequels is kind of almost in this golden age, a history before history. And as the storyline advances from episode one, The Phantom Menace, we're treated to a very similar back and forth between good and evil, between the Jedi Knight and the Sith Lord. But the overall trajectory of the prequels seems to be going in the reverse direction from the first trilogy. Because 
The boy who seems to be the one that's chosen to set things right, as you go further and further along in the prequels, slips into the darkness. In the fierce and intense struggle as episode three closes and the whole prequel trilogy closes, we learn that the true enemies who we thought the protagonists, our heroes, had been fighting all along were actually among them. And it's that blindness that proves to be their undoing. In the climax of the movie's final moments, we see that the Jedi Order that seemed to be thriving has been destroyed. All the Republic forces have been manipulated in control of the Emperor, and the Republican Senate has been rendered ineffective. With again, all the promise that the prequel plotline had, there are two scenes really especially that stand out to me from the whole trilogy series, and they're at the very end of that, episode three. The first is on the vol volcanic planet Mustafar. Of Anakin Skywalker, the boy that had the incredible promise, the one that seemed to be chosen, who's now maimed and burned. He's lost both his arm and both of his legs. And with his one good arm, he's trying to clutch up this ravine to avoid falling into a, uh, a uh, lava flow. And while he's doing that, he's shouting the words, I hate you. And standing opposite of him is Obi-Wan Kenobi, who is grieving, who's lamenting, because he was the one who did that to Anakin, and saying, you were supposed to be the chosen one. The second scene that always stays with me is from the bridge of a newly minted Star Destroyer, which is this sterile, harsh, and bleak contrast to all the other starships that we've seen in the prequel series. And both of those scenes somehow bring us back into the present of this galactic empire, which we're familiar with beginning in episode four. In light of the first trilogy's arc, when you see Luke Skywalker and he goes and he defeats, he blows up the, the Death Star at Return of the Jedi and has this definitive victory for good, Episode three and the prequels are this powerful counterpoint to any sort of glib declarations that they may want to make about defeating evil once for all with laser swords, flying ships, and a little scrappy grip. It reminds us that victory is almost always temporary. And that viewed from a big enough angle, history tends to repeat itself over and over. And whether it's through pride or naivete, it exposes my limits. It's part of the cathartic experience, I guess, of watching the prequels. That my idealism, optimism, or overconfidence may not be the decisive factor in overcoming all of my obstacles. You get to the end of the prequels and you learn that the dark side or evil is not to be trifled with. In Exodus 32, like the end of Star Wars Episode Three. We've arrived at the edge of the world that we know and are familiar with, where God and Sid fight for the destiny of the world and for our souls. Exodus 32 similarly strips away any glib declaration I want to make about how we can defeat sin once for all with just some extra food in the desert or some laws written in stone and a little scrappy grip. Israel here in this moment as they create this idol seems like they're on the verge of total collapse and slipping into the darkness. But in the midst of that moment, of sin's apparent triumph over Israel, we shift to God and Moses up on the mountain. 
God delivers the judgment that's right and that we all expect here. Ultimately, sin and God cannot coexist. And if Israel or we won't be freed of it, it feels like the only option is total destruction. But that's not how this passage ends. What if, while sin is slapping down its trump card, God has already read sin's tell? What if God has been prepared for that the whole time? The problem, of course, with sin and evil is despite all the promise to be exciting, it's very boring and predictable. Love and joy alone are capable of true surprise and wonder. And you know, there's a funny thing that can happen from time to time in card games that use a standard 52 card deck. Numerically or ordinarily speaking, the king, just like in real life, who has dominion over an area or region, is the top card of the suit. But a strange thing can happen sometimes where if, instead of trying to outrank or outmatch the king, you draw and you play the lowest card of the suit, the one, the ace. The king is nevertheless beaten. And I wonder if in this moment, God has set up Israel more representatively Moses as his ace. How? Where was the setup? Right? This is the point, if it's a heist movie, you go back in time and you figure out how it was all done. But God did it all in plain sight, in the story that you and I have been going through all these weeks. Israel and Moses have witnessed over and over and over and over God's faithfulness, even in the midst of unfaithfulness. Israel and Moses have witnessed over and over and over God's humility in coming to dwell with his own creation, the people that he made in common prophets in pillars and in plagues. And maybe what Moses realizes now in this moment with the golden calf is that it's a shell game to try to defeat sin by overpowering it like just another kingdom of the earth or by blowing up a death star. Maybe what Moses realizes in this moment is that the Exodus isn't really about wonders or signs or demonstrations of power or even holy rules as good as all those things may be. Maybe in this moment, Moses realizes that God's almighty power is most truly expressed and exercised in his faithfulness and in his humility, and that to become the chosen people of this God, they need to be a people whose humility is more courageous than their pride, whose weakness is more powerful than their strength, and whose surrender is greater than their freedom. In this moment, as God and Moses are up on that mountainside, something really extraordinary is happening. It's almost like if any of you could imagine having tried to teach your child how to share. And rather than commanding them just to share, you invite them into a situation where they might be able to make that judgment for themselves. And for the first time, you watch and you see them choose on their own behalf to share after all the time you've been trying to teach them to do it. And they've realized and become more fully the person that they're called to be and that they are. So here with Moses, as he's up on the mountainside with God and reminds God of who God is, as he realizes this is who the character of God is, who the character of what we're called to be. And as Moses intercedes for Israel in that moment, a miracle surpassing even Egypt happens. Because Israel is forgiven and sin's trump card is rendered null and void. 
And God continues the plan for all creation through Israel. Sin's aim in all of this was to fool us and to believe that an upward reach, a seizing, a grasping, is how we get to God. And that sin is able to block that. But what we see in Moses, in the scripture, in the Exodus, is that we actually get closer to God. Or maybe God gets closer to us through a kneeling, bent-down posture that's like the very God who chooses to tabernacle upon the earth amongst his people. And I think that if you step back and you look at this whole narrative, you can see from the beginning through the end of the Exodus its purpose, that there is this unreserved, full-hearted surrender to God that is the point of the thing. In the moment that we humbly confess and repent, we find ourselves cleansed of sin's grasp and wrapped in God's impenetrable life and love. Exodus, of course, isn't the last word on salvation. The scriptures don't end at Exodus. It goes a lot farther than that. But I want you to see in this penultimate moment in the story of salvation that God shows us here how to live victoriously over sin, something that will be more clarified in Jesus. But even here, until he comes to defeat it once for all with his son at the end of days, we come to our Lord exactly like Moses does, offering up our lives, ourselves, our weaknesses, our sins, because as we're willing to offer that up, to confess them, to be humble, God is closer to us even than our own sin. And as we respond to Exodus 32, I believe part of it in our first task here is to be able to name and to see our own sin. We know in this story, as we followed all along, that Israel is a people who have experienced the power, the presence, and the life of God up close and personal. If they hadn't, they never would have left Egypt. But nevertheless, for having experienced that, they still wind up back in sin. Even in the midst of Sinai, even in the midst of the congregation of Israel, right there at the very heart of making the covenant. And I think one of the powerful things that's a reminder in this passage is that our circumstances or our current state in life is no indicator of our vulnerability to sin. Maybe one of the odd rules of the spiritual life or laws, I guess, of that life is that when the battle is most obvious to us and others with sin, we're more able, more capable of freely admitting that we need the grace of God. But in the moment where we feel like we're kind of beyond its reach, it sneaks through in a dozen undetected ways. We throw all of our rings together and out pops a golden calf. To be cleansed and delivered from sin, which all of us who have called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ have been, is not the same thing as being invulnerable to it. You know, there's a line uh, that's often used in, in some circles where an addict is an addict, whether they're a junkie or sober. And I think a part of that connection also is in the second part of this passage, just the power that confession is. That being able to realize the power is not something that we hold within ourselves, but ultimately that we're always dependent on God in each and every moment. And in recognizing both our tendency towards sin and our dependence on God, it's God who gives us good gifts to help us be humble, to help us be faithful like he is, and so live victoriously in the midst of sin. This is what the whole law is about. 
the law is not an end in of itself. It's to help cultivate this, this disposition to receive the grace, the life, the goodness of God. And now for us, what we would call the works of devotion, the works of mercy, that may come in a little bit more on next week. They're not tools that are a substitute for the saving power of God, but they can be if we receive them as an act of mercy and love. A transcendent gift that helps us glimpse and touch the reality of heaven even here and now. So this morning, I guess I hope that you'll be able to come to the table in light of Exodus 32. Even at the pinnacle of worship, even as we're gathered here now, even as we're anticipating coming, we're still the possibility of being led astray or being deceived or being lost in sin. God here calls us out of the midst of the idolatry of our world and ourselves to repent, to be free, to let go over the course of this last week of what may have been an obstacle or a stumbling block of us trusting in ourselves or anything other than God. We are invited to place all of our trust, all of our hope in God and intercede like Moses, not just for ourselves, but for a world, for a people that God has made. And as we confess and repent this morning, the Lord's righteousness, his grace become this shield that cannot, that sin cannot stop and that sends us into the world in his unstoppable power. Shall we pray together? Lord, our God, we're grateful this morning that even in the midst of the golden calf episode, even in the midst of Israel falling back into sin, after all the wonders, after all the signs, after the covenant, you are still the God who is above all these things faithful. That Moses can stand before you and intercede for your people, realizing and taking the full extent that the promise that you give us is also the promise that we could become like you if we're willing in humility, in openness to receive your grace. We pray, Lord, that we might be that kind, that sort of people who exhibit your characteristics, who see and who recognize what it is to be like you. Allow us, Lord, to come to this table able to receive your grace, allowing you to thoroughly transform, renew our hearts and our minds. We ask and we trust all this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.